You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Amgen Oncology, advancing oncology at the speed of life. On September 4th, the Washington Post brought together leading oncologists, innovative researchers, and cancer survivors for a live event in Boston, examining the latest developments in cancer treatment, prevention, and detection. Innovative technologies are shaping the future of oncology. In this segment, we'll hear from science and medical experts on how technologies such as AI, machine learning, and genome editing are being used to prevent, diagnose, and treat cancer. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Frances Steed Sellers. I'm a senior writer at the Washington Post. Um, I'm here today with um, Andrew Beck, who is CEO and co-founder of Path AI. Leslie Solomon, Senior Vice President and Chief Innovation Officer at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and Amir Ali Talazas, who is the President and COO of Gardent Health. Welcome all three. And a reminder to everybody in the audience, if you have questions, please tweet them to me using the hashtag postlive. So let's get started. And this afternoon, our focus is on innovative technologies that are transforming cancer care. So, Amir Ali, I'd like to start with you. Your company is apparently a developing a test that could potentially detect cancer very early on through a blood test. How far are we from that sort of diagnosis? Where, where are we along the curve towards learning about that, and what lies ahead? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, when we started Gardent Health, like seven years ago, we believe in the promise of using blood tests, simple blood tests or liquid biopsy as we call it, for detecting cancer in very early stages. And today, based on all the progress that we made and the whole field of liquid biopsy made, I'm very happy to say that we are not that far away for such a promise to become a reality. Now, in terms of actually what Garden has done and the whole uh, uh, landscape of liquid biopsy, uh, we decided to start from advanced cancer patients in the place that actually tumor levels in the blood are high and the unmet clinical need is uh, clear. We develop our uh, test for uh, treatment selection in advanced cancer patients and through the data that we have generated in that journey of testing over 100,000 patients, we optimize our technology, we understood the biology of these tumor biomarkers in blood over time, and that biological insight actually helped us to even optimize the technology further. Last December, actually, we uh, launched a test for research use only for looking at the cancer patient survivors. Is there cancer back or not? But in the research use setting for our academic partners and biopharmaceutical companies to start generating some kind of clinical evidence. And we also announced that later this year, we are gonna start our first pivotal study on the screening, uh, on the screening part of looking at colorectal cancer screening in patients with average risk. It's gonna be a 10,000 patient study, which we are happy to start it actually later this year. So this is looking at a future where you could go for your annual physical and have a blood test and be tested for a... Exactly, and you know, this platform technology is not just specific for colorectal, but that's the uh, first cancer type that we are starting generating the clinical evidence and hopefully bringing the test to clinic. And you know, 
that's why I'm saying that that promise of liquid biopsy and screening cancer with a simple blood test is not far away. So Andrew, take me into another form of technology. Your company is involved with artificial intelligence and powering that to help with um, pathology, which, as I understand it, is usually done with slides and using the human eye. Yeah. What can AI bring to that sort of um, work? What difference can it make? And what advances are you looking at in the future? Sure. So um, kind of the, the background to this is, you know, the job of the pathologist really for maybe 150 years has been um, a tissue sample is removed from a patient because there's serious concern of a disease process happening. For example, you can imagine in the future, a patient does go in for her annual physical, gets a, a blood test that reveals there could be a risk of a malignancy somewhere, and we would expect the next step you know, would be a tissue biopsy, mm -hmm. and that's a piece of tissue taken from the patient, sent to the lab. Very invasive. Um, Yes, I mean, the assay can be invasive, and then really it's the pathologist's job to make the ground truth diagnosis of is this cancer and does it need to be treated with, with potentially aggressive therapies, including surgery or chemotherapy or radiotherapy, or is this a benign process? So it's incredibly important to get that right. And the task itself is, has been for 150 years, a pathologist looking at glass slides with, in some cases, special stains or routine stains under a microscope, and based on the pattern of what they're seeing by eye, making a diagnosis, putting that in a report, and then that becomes the ground truth to guide clinical care. So one of the areas of technology that's advanced tremendously over the past five years is computer vision. And this is training computers to see patterns in images, and that's been advanced by a few things. One is availability of lots more data, availability of cloud computing, and some key algorithmic advances. So we really see a future where every glass slide that comes in, um, the pathologist and the physician is being augmented by the best in machine learning to make sure that each patient's it's getting the right data. Big, big data, looking at the patterns of these cells. Certainly learning from very big data. So the great thing about AI systems is they can learn from essentially arbitrarily large data sets. So for example, we've trained our system now on millions of examples of labeled images, and you know we're a very young company. You can imagine five years from now it'll be hundreds of millions. Um, so that, say, every new pathologist right out of training can be assisted by a system that's trained off very large data. And then the system, when it's deployed, again, is generating large data. So on each slide, there are on the order of hundreds of thousands of cells. And an AI system that's been trained on a very large and robust data set can then classify all of these cells and use that information to guide Just uh, briefly, diagnosis. you're also an MD, right? So do you believe that there should be more use of um, robotics and AI technology in medical schools? Should, should medical students be learning more about these technologies earlier on? Absolutely, yeah. And I think, you know, medical curriculum uh, should be very dynamic and really adapt to the new technologies that are going to define the medicine of the future. Um, and I think often they actually are pretty dynamic and changing curriculum being quite critical. So I think medical school is an area of education where they're constantly reevaluating. And without a doubt, it's going to be very important for physicians of the future to know the strengths and the limitations of these technologies and for it really to be a core competency of them to, to pick the right technologies to right. help patients the most. So Leslie, you come from a background in startups and you're now at one of the premier cancer institutes in the country. What's the most exciting new technology you see coming into an oncology now? Yeah, I think actually the two people that you have <laughs> on either side of me are some of the most important technologies right. that are out there. I think the dream that we all have is that we're gonna be able to detect cancer. With a blood test. It's stage one, right. you know, before when we can actually treat it and prevent it from, from getting worse. I think right. that's one dream. I think the other technology that we get really excited about is cancer vaccines. 
Right. We have Dr. Kathy Wu at Dana-Farber has been developing uh, personalized neoantigen cancer vaccines. And if we can figure out how to do that, scale it, and make it work in all patients, that, again, is a dream that one day we could give a vaccine to a child before they even get old and in danger of getting cancer um, for, for every cancer right. out there. And so I think there are technologies now that are really pushing the edge. There's, you know, there were a lot of uh, discussions earlier about clinical trials, and the more we can test these things, and the more that we can put these things in, in our patients and, and, and try it, right. the better off that we'll be. So how does it work for you um, in the role you have at Dana-Farber? Um, working with companies or hearing from clinicians about what's out there, how do you know what to, how, how does the development, the bridge making happen? And that's the, that is actually the challenge because, again, on either side of me, there are two great exciting technologies being developed, but they all have competitors that are doing the right. same or very similar things. And so part of what we have to evaluate is how do we figure out who the right partner is for Dana-Farber one way that, that they're doing it, and they're doing it successfully, is by identifying a clinician champion mm. that wants to test their technology. Um, when they come to me and they say, hey, you know, we want to work with you, this is really exciting technology, I say, okay, great, let me go find the right clinician to do this. And it actually takes me a long time to right. figure out who that right person might be. But when they find the clinician, find the faculty member who's so excited about this, Garden is working with one of our clinicians now, and if we can um, work with them together, and then my team supports them to make it happen, mm. so to, to do that work. But it is challenging to identify sometimes who's the right partner out there to do this work with. I have a question that's come in on Twitter, and, and it builds a little bit on what I just asked you, Andrew, but th the viewer asks, can you talk about how creativity works in making these amazing strides in, t in treating cancer? How do you teach or encourage creativity in researchers and future researchers? I think it's an interesting approach, and if any of you would like to jump in. I mean, my two cents are, I think we can leverage our creativity so much more with some of these new technologies, like what you know, very creative companies like Garden can do with next-gen sequencing. It's sort of using, realizing these are tools that enable our creativity to have global impact and, uh, and potentially allow us to do totally new things that I think is so exciting. And I think, you know, the creativity has never been more required. And I think, say, in the future, if pathologists are aided by AI, I think they'll have far more ability to use their creative skills to impact patients even more than, say, today or 10 years ago, where a lot of the job was actually counting individual cells. Right. So I think we'll see a sort of a blossoming of physician creativity and scientist creativity leveraged by a lot of the lower level tasks being solved by technology, hopefully. And Amir, Ali, have you been designing uh, clinical trials for these tests now? Are you working now with hospitals and, and then Yeah, sure. Um, you know, one of the elements that we always believed at Gardent was to develop the clinical evidence that our devices matters, our test matters, which in this case means we could improve the clinical outcome for the patients. I remember actually the first week that uh, back in 2014 when our Garden 360, our first clinical test for advanced cancer patients came to market. The same week, actually, we got the first sample for one of our major prospective clinical studies back in 2014. And that was with the help of definitely the key opinion leaders, which are in uh, major academic centers. We actually scaled that operation. We worked with all the uh, cancer centers, which are NCCN centers, and they are designated cancer centers in terms of their quality of 
uh, clinical care and clinical research. And maybe actually going back to the previous uh, topic and the value of the data and how it helps us to become uh, more creative in terms of our technology development. I can tell you the biggest assets that we had at Gardent was the data that we were generating. And when we were using kind of learning algorithms that when you're processing more and more samples, you're generating more and more data, over time your technology could improve. We were achieving much higher performance, but also we were learning the biology better. And when we were learning the biology better, that was the part that creativity was coming into our picture on technology development, that we could look at some new data streams, new dimensions that the first stream of our data was blind to. Mm -hmm. So that enabled us to capture higher diversity data set and more complicated learning process to really optimize our technology and develop the technologies that we are now trying to take them to clinic for early cancer management. Leslie, one of the, the buzz terms I hear a lot is digital health. Mm -hmm. um, how are you integrating digital health in Dana-Farber and what does it mean for an institute like that? Yeah, cancer oncology is, is incredibly complicated. Right. And so, so much of what we do at Dana-Farber is based on the therapeutics and the drugs and the science that's around um, curing and treating our patients. Digital health, to me, is a partnership between the patient, their caregivers, their providers, and the therapeutic process that they're going mm. through. And so when we think about digital health, we think about how can we make the patient experience better, the provider experience better, and how can we also use digital health to get the intellectual capital from Dana-Farber clinicians out to the rest of the world. Could you give a very practical example? Yeah, so, um, yeah, specifically at Dana-Farber, over the past three or four years, we've developed cancer pathways. So clinical decision port, uh, sorry, clinical decision support on when a patient comes in, what their genomics are, what their disease looks like, and then what the first line of treatment should be, the second line of treatment, the third line of treatment. And our clinicians update that quarterly um, based on new research, new drugs, new information, and what we were doing was treating our patients with that data, with that, with those pathways for years. And our goal was to actually take those pathways and get it out to patients everywhere. And so last year we partnered with Philips Healthcare mm -hmm. to put our clinical pathways into their IntelliSpace platform. So now hospitals around the world actually can take the IntelliSpace platform and use Dana-Farber decision-making in treating their patients, which is wonderful because in a lot of community hospitals, you might find them using older protocols, and right. now they can start right. to use the cutting-edge protocols that Dana-Farber is using. So you can just transfer this, your experience all around the world. So how can we take what Dana-Farber clinicians know right. and get that out to clinicians and patients everywhere so that their care can right. be Im improved? Right. Andrew, we've just had this panel on precision health, and I was wondering how AI could possibly accelerate those sorts of novel approaches to treating cancer? Sure, so you know the goal of precision health is really to understand in great detail the characteristics of a particular patient's disease and then to enable the right treatment to be selected uh, for, for their disease. And, and AI can help in a few ways. One is enabling us to learn from every patient in the past. So we can generate features and learn about the complexity as input of what are the characteristics of a patient's disease from their genomics to quantitative information from pathology. 
um, other family and clinical history, what treatment did they receive, and what was their outcome. And with machine learning, we can use each of these as a training example, and over time, we will accumulate many training examples, and we've already seen this in a lot of our work, uh, to where when we get a new patient sample, um, you know, the goal is to be able to then apply these models to make a prediction for which treatment is gonna be most effective for that particular patient based on the particular characteristics of their disease. So to really, we think, to do precision medicine effectively and scalably, it really needs to be learning over time from data, and machine learning is sort of the core technology that enables learning from more and more examples. You know, the tech health sector is so big and so sprawling. I'd love you each just to give me an idea of what you think the next big thing is, not necessarily in your own field or your own company, but what would you like to see We've got a, a couple of minutes, so maybe. So I think, uh, I, I, I believe on uh, AI in genomics and in healthcare, but with the notion of data plus some AI algorithms, which after generating vast majorities of the data over time gets better, bundled with biological insight development. If you can connect these three together and close the feedback loop, I think some uh, significant unmet need in the clinical care in oncology and in other kind of uh, diseases would get solved. I think that every patient that comes into Dana-Farber or any other cancer center should come in with their disease and we should know immediately what treatment they should get. And in order for us to do that versus testing things on them that might not work for that patient with that right. disease, um, we need more data, and we need data that can be um, put together, and then you know these machine learning algorithms can be built on top of. And so I do see a future where when all of the data that we have at Dana-Farber and across all these other cancer institutions comes together, and we can learn from it and predict which patient should get which treatment mm -hmm. without having to try one thing, try another thing. And we only can do that by understanding their genomics, we're doing, we have a program at Dana-Farber called Immunoprofile, where we're now starting to profile the immune envi environment of every tumor so that we can start to put that data, the imaging, the pathology, the radiology, all of that together will allow us to make these predictions and treat patients the way that they should be treated right. immediately. Ex yeah, exciting prospect. Yeah, and just to kind of re reiterate this, I think one of the, the major challenges and opportunities over um, the next five or 10 years is first using these technologies scalably in clinical research. I think we're only at the very beginning of even large, say, biopharma companies running clinical trials for them to be able to integrate data across their, say, hundreds of trials and tens of therapeutic areas to really learn tremendous amounts from the great wealth of data that can be generated from pathology and from genomics and other data types. And then probably the even larger challenge, which we're only at the very beginning of, is then how do you distribute these scalably globally? And that's where the, the major impact is to, to connect labs and hospitals around the world with, you know, through the internet, through cloud computing, and through other platforms with the output of all the learning we're getting from clinical research. And I think this, this virtuous cycle of connecting the real world to clinical research um, will have a tremendous impact. Well, these are exciting possibilities, and I want to thank you all very much for for sharing your thoughts with us. Um, that's all we have time for today. Uh, you can follow up on this afternoon's programs on WashingtonPostLive.com. You can see videos there, and later on, th on this evening, photographs and clips from this afternoon's sessions. And thank you very much, everybody in the audience and here on stage for joining us all today. Thank you.
Thank you. Thanks for the audience. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.